1290. Stay tuned. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay, your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and at Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with a personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. I just want to share with you that Cornerstone, I just got a quote for a 30-year fixed mortgage at 2.875. Yeah, that's the lowest it's ever been. It's ever been. It's amazing. So anyone listening... You know, you've probably heard Kelly on the on the show before. She's great and she's worth giving a call, especially with these interest rates being as low as they are. Well, I don't know if people realize, but I I mean, they won't realize about me, but just in general, uh, when I bought my first summer house in New York in the 70s, my uh, interest rate was 14 percent and it went up to 18 percent. And I was so pleased with myself because I had a cheap mortgage at 14 percent. I mean, it's just you know, unbelievable what's happened here. Yeah. 2.875 is the lowest it's ever been for a 30 year fixed. It's crazy. Well, one day it'll be negative and people will pay you to own a home. <laughs> Don't wait for that to refire. Meanwhile. So do we have, we have a guest today. We have my business partner in, he is the director of investments at Arlington financial advisors, Arthur Swally. Arthur, thank you for being here with us. Thanks very much, Diane. Neil, great to be here. So the first and Neil, article, do we have some articles? Yes, yeah, we, do. we do. We do. And great. the first article is entitled "Modern Lessons from a 300-Year-Old uh, Mass Delusions," and it begins in the summer of seven. This is, by the way, uh, our favorite uh, Jason Swig uh, in his weekend column, and he begins by saying, "In the summer of 1720, shares of the South Sea uh, Company." And other leading stocks soared to all-time highs as speculators chased instant profits. By July 10th through July 12th, 1720, South Sea shares perched at about 950 pounds, up 650% from the prior year. Uh, in August, it was up 1,243%. Then in three catastrophic weeks, it began crashing down. By the end of 1720, these leading stocks had fallen between 81 and 96% from their peak. The losses were so devastating, uh, King George I uh, and half the members of parliament, so Isaac Newton and poet Alexander Pope had lost tremendous amount of money. And the reason he brings this all up is because we are in a period today, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, during the show, 
about these this this you know uh, stock market that seems to know no highs, and he talks about the fact that uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, and uh, the herd mentality is not something that's new, and how this has been true for years uh, and years and years. A London housekeeper back in the 1700s racked up a gain of 8,000 pounds, uh, which in today's money is 1.5 million, um, and fistfights broke out over the right to buy stock. Um, and as the word spread over the periods of not only the 1720s, but in the 1920s when radio was the new thing, uh, and when we had uh, newspapers as a new thing, and then we had uh, t television, and then we had tech, there's always something new like Tesla, and everybody sort of joins in. So, you know, he's pointing out that human nature being what it is, that it is a powerful force uh, to and profoundly human to always want to be doing what everyone else is doing. That's yes, that's true. And there's also with so much money on the sidelines that that's in the market, the liquidity that the Fed has, um, you know, supplied to the economy. We're seeing lots of money with no with no home. Uh, the next article is uh, uh, entitled "Real Estate Valuation Vex Pension Funds." Uh, how assets are valued, and we've talked about this before, um, is a problem when it's uh, private equity or real estate or something that doesn't trade. And what, uh, a, whether it's a pension fund or a, uh, any type of investor in these assets, they rely on appraisers and the company who is the investor uh, and the company that's the promoter to give estimates as to what the assets are worth. But today, with a pandemic, it, all the rules are out the window. And so it's very difficult for um, these pension funds to properly mark the value of the assets. And um, the, uh, the disparity, and the article goes into similar assets being priced at vastly different uh, values, depending upon who the holder is. And pension funds have had you know, serious problems with uh, under-reserving because their assumptions over the last 25 years for stock market gains have been too optimistic. And now we have a situation, and they've increased, by the way, they've doubled the percentage. Real estate holdings uh, in U.S. pension funds have doubled from 3.8% to over 6% in the last couple of years. The values that these uh, pension funds are going to be putting on these assets uh, are certainly at best suspect. Um, it's always good to read a long article and have total silence. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing to say on that. You know, uh, okay, you know well, me, I try to jump in with my two cents as often as I can. Okay, let me try this one. Uh, it's realty investors rush to crowdfunding deals. And, you know, this is, again, typical of kind of a very, very hot bull market uh, where thousands of small investors are putting uh, away money in uh, companies that are uh, raising crowdfunding deals to buy real estate. And, um, you know, this is another example of where people are investing in, uh, in assets that are not only difficult to, uh, to value if, for the, whoever's doing the crowdfunding, but for the investor, you, you really have no idea what your investment's worth once you put your money in. Um, Great. That's, I mean, that's a great topic is, is uh, liquidity and price discovery. You know, we're having a real 
issue, uh, ever, I think ever since 2008, frankly, with uh, what the actual price of an asset is based on its future cash flow and its economic potential because of the uh, uh, now many various federal uh, support programs that have been pumping all this liquidity into the marketplace. Uh, you know, an asset's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it at a given moment. And if things aren't trading, then things can get made up and it's rife for, for fraud, potential fraud and abuse. Let, me, let, me, let me ask you a question, Arthur, about that. You mm -hmm. mentioned uh, the liquidity the, the, that is being put into the system. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really find difficult to understand is that one of the uh, explanations for the stock market rise is you know, the Fed's uh, pumping not only money into the usual uh, uh, conduits to put money into, but they're also putting up uh, guarantees to buy corporate bonds. Now, what sure. I don't understand, I, and you know that that stabilizes the corporate bond market. But what I don't understand is, as companies uh, uh, you, uh, are benefiting from having the ability to sell their bonds because people feel comfortable with the government buying the bonds. How does that really help anybody else? If the company goes out of business, then the only thing that you get as a as an investor other than the government is the ability to liquidate the company how does why are people i understand why it helps the liquidity in the overall bond market but how does it help another investor and why does another individual investor or, or pension investor sure. actually feel comfortable to buy a bond just because the government's buying it too well, they'll buy the bond. They need to buy the bonds. Pension plans and, and, and insurance companies need to buy long-dated uh, uh, assets to um, pay their future liabilities. It's a, but what, it, what that government program really does is it, first of all, it stabilizes the corporation that's issuing the debt so that they can theoretically um, focus on making more profits for the actual common shareholder. So the investor then says, well, um, let's buy that stock because I know that their debt's not going to go bad and they're not going to go bankrupt. So the stock has a shot of making some money. So I'm willing to, at whatever price I want to pay for it, I'm willing to go ahead and invest in that company. So that frees liquidity up for investment in the companies, uh, that under, underpinning of corporate bond uh, buying by the government. But it only underpins the corporate bond borrowing. Sure. It doesn't underpin the corporate bonds being able to be paid off. I don't. I don't see how you're. Well, if the if the company if the company can't issue the debt, uh, then that speaks to fragility in the company's finances, and then stock investors flee. Uh, you know, customers start demanding you know stricter payment terms for the company to buy their their basic materials they need to make the products they're selling, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a, a, a unwinding spiral. Okay. I understand that. And that's why it's good as long as it works. But I don't mm -hmm. see how people can feel comfortable in buying lousy companies' mm -hmm. debt with low spreads, low interest rates, mm -hmm. uh, be, just because the government's also buying it. If the, you know, if when, when, when the music stops, all you're going to end up with is paper that's going to be treated like any other debt. I, I understand it as, as a stimulus thing. I, don't I, I agree. I, I agree with you, Neil. I, that, is, that is correct. I think that the debt is one that uh, is being made on the basis that, you know, the company is going to be able to make it through to the other side of this crisis uh, with that, that 
uh, bolster under their their bonds, so they won't um, be in risk of not being able to issue new debt and defaulting. So it, it's a it's a playthrough to you know the six months to a year uh, time frame of of hopefully some kind of vaccine or some kind of uh, re- resolution to the crisis that we're having right now. You're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety KZSB, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending since 1988, a mortgage lender and banker that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to his customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached 805-564-1290. Or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have my business partner, Arthur Swally, who's the Director of Investments at Arlington Financial Advisors with us today. Arthur, thanks so much for being here, taking the time. Thank you. Great to be here. Good to see you again. So let's talk a little bit about what your role is at Arlington um, and, and how do you fit into the overall company? Well, sure. Um, I was founding partner of the company in 2010, along with you, Diane. And then uh, we started our business group back in 1999. Uh, and uh, Diane actually joined the group in 2000. So we've been working together now for 20 years, which is uh, pretty remarkable and 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 enjoyable. So it's been a great run. Um, my job uh, from the start, I started at Merrill Lynch and was trained in securities analysis and uh, stock uh, uh, research and portfolio construction. 
And I've been performing that role at Arlington for the last 10 years. I come up with the um, asset allocation uh, models, the, uh, the ideas for uh, portfolio construction. We have a five person investment committee, uh, which vets and examines all of my uh, work. And then we put the portfolios uh, into play for our, for our client base. Perfect. That's my main role. Yeah. And so now, what do you think are the advantages or disadvantages of being in your role here in a small town of Santa Barbara as opposed to being in one of the major financial hubs like Manhattan or something like that? Of course, pre pre COVID at, at question. Well, yeah, that's a very interesting pre COVID question. I think post COVID, it, it's become eminently clear that we can. Uh, do lots of our business and analysis uh, um, remotely. Uh, that's been actually the case now for quite some time. Um, in reality, a lot of money managers are uh, spread all over the, the world. Um, you can get amazing information and have dialogue with colleagues uh, uh, without having to be physically present with them, uh, thanks to innovations like the Bloomberg terminal and, and of course the internet uh, being key uh, in that democratization of information. Um, the tricky part is, is that when information is democratized, it's hard to figure out uh, what to do with it. So that's where, you know, rigorous uh, reading and work and, and experience uh, and training, you know, come into play to, you know, provide, uh, uh, the professional experience uh, uh, in the investment world. To follow up on that, to follow up on that, one of the benefits, uh, and I guess you know, this is a, a question. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't believe what I'm about to say. That's why he chose Omaha, where he doesn't have to worry about running into another investor walking down the street during lunch. But one of the attractions of places like New York was that you'd walk down the street at lunchtime and you'd meet somebody from another company. And you'd spend two minutes talking and, you you know, there's energy, there's sharing of ideas. It's, you know, when you do a Zoom call, you're basically talking to the person you called, whereas there's this sort of accidental contact that takes place or over drinks or where you're talking to people from different places. Once the, the I guess what the question is, be, being like a Warren Buffett sitting in a place that's not known for its investment uh, community, mm -hmm. is that a disadvantage or an advantage? Well, I think that Warren and, and Buffett and Mr. Buffett and I would both argue that it's an advantage to be not in the uh, caught up in the in the in the race of rapid information flow that leads to, frankly, making too many decisions. Uh, when you, as investors, when we make too many decisions, we increase the odds of, of mistakes. We, as Warren Buffett famously says, uh, you know, he he likes he thinks a year where he has one to two good ideas and really buys a lot of it. Uh, is a really good year. You, you don't need to be a successful investor to have lots of ideas all the time, I think is the point. Uh, plus, um, there's a, uh, a, a feed on the ground in local business communities that, that in, in regular America, so to speak, like Omaha or Santa Barbara or, uh, or uh, wherever it may be, that um, gets away from the speculations and manipulations of, uh, of big Wall Street firms and, and, and big money center uh, situations, which in my opinion, tend to uh, not necessarily put investors' um, uh, needs first. 
So before um, before that follow-up question, you mentioned the Bloomberg terminal. Will you explain a little bit about what that is and why that's an advantage? Well, sure. I mean, for investors around the world, you pay a healthy amount of money to uh, the Bloomberg company, Mike Bloomberg's company, uh, which he started back in the 80s as, a inform- as an information where- uh, warehouse, basically. Uh, you pay the money and there is a massive amount of financial information available to you as an investor on any security around the world, uh, public or private, um, balance sheets, uh, all the data that's, that you need to make good decisions uh, is there. It's an amazing amount of data. Um, and you get up to the second uh, uh, news and, and price flow, and there's an entire communication network built into it where you can communicate with colleagues all over the world. Uh, and also Bloomberg is built up in, in uh, truly uh, impressive roster of journalists, many of whom were fired or laid off uh, as newspapers, traditional media sources have cons- have downsized over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, Bloomberg's hired a lot of them, and they are excellent journalists and you know, really are on top of uh, what's going on in the world as well. So that's also a, uh, a benefit of having that kind of uh, access to uh, the financial world. And so in your, in your role at Arlington, a really um, chief investment officer, how do you collaborate with the rest of us? So the financial planners and mm-hmm. the individual clients? Sure, sure. Um, well, typically, uh, early in the uh, client uh, uh, onboarding process, um, I will be brought in to uh, discuss uh the investment portfolios that we run and how they would and, and mesh with the, the individual client's needs, uh, ask, you know, answer questions and be there for investors specific needs. Every investor we find has a, something a little different and unique about their situation uh, that, that can and should be addressed. Um, so how uh, also we, collaborate with the planners is, is that the planners are responsible for uh, developing the client's risk tolerance and asset allocation uh, needs. And we customize our portfolios to uh, match up with each client's uh, uh, risk tolerance and, um, and return needs. And how do you measure risk? Uh, actually, um, we have a program in the financial planning world uh, which is a psychologically based uh, program that's called Riskalyze. And it delves into the deep psychological uh, uh, basis of each investor's uh, risk, uh, ability to tolerate risk. Um, it's not just a you know conservative, moderate, aggressive kind of boilerplate situation. It's an in-depth process that uh, uses this, you know, scientifically valid psychological testing to uh, hone in on on what that uh, risk tolerance uh, for each individual client is. And a lot of that actually balances the weight between how much that they their emotions can handle taking on risk and how much risk they either need to or not need to take on to achieve the goals that they that they they want to accomplish in life. Uh, what uh, what about if you're afraid to leave your house? What uh, be, <laughs> what, what would you how do you categorize that person? Um, By Amazon. 
<laughs> they can deliver everything to your house. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. All of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address, all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Come on, people. Think about it. It's time to pay attention. Mortgage industry is not rocket science. Your guide to the information you can use to choose the best answers to your real estate financing questions. Join me Tuesdays at 2 p.m., 10 p.m., and Sundays at noon. Your guy in the mortgage industry, Guy Rivera. Tune in to 1290 AM, Santa Barbara News Press Radio Station. For 16 years on State and Islay. I'm Guy Rivera, your guy in the mortgage industry. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And if you're just joining us, we have Arthur Swally, who's my business partner at Arlington Financial Advisors with us. And we're talking about the market and his role at Arlington Financial Advisors. So Arthur, with all the uncertainty of what's going on in 2020, which, which has been a lot, um, the pandemic, just to mention one, you know, why is the stock market continuing to go up? And, and what is going on that's making it hit new highs, even within this uh, economist-deemed recession, as well as global pandemic? Uh, sure. Um, well, that's probably one of the uh, questions I get asked the most often in the last few weeks. My mom asked me that yesterday. So uh, <laughs> the, the answer uh, that I can come up with is, is that we um, have a situation where uh, we have an amazing amount of capital that is in the marketplace that investors have uh, accumulated that have been a part of stim economic stimulus programs. Uh, the amount of cash in the system is uh, at an all-time high. And yeah, I think 
the, I think we have over $4 trillion in cash right now. And the reality is, is that if you go to buy a safe asset like a bond, you're probably going to get about anywhere from 0.5% to 2%. And in money markets pay zero CDs as any investor out there right now looking for safe yield knows there's virtually no return. So it comes back to a question of how do I get return? Um, and the return is going to be in, in the stock market, uh, barring uh, those other options and people are willing to take that risk. And until uh, the money gets spent down, I think that that's where um, the, the risk will continue to be taken. Uh, the government underpinning the economy by what Neil discussed earlier in the bond market by buying corporate and mortgages and all different kinds of bonds has really given a lot of uh, uh, fuel to the fire of people saying, I'm going to go ahead and buy stocks now because I have confidence that the Fed Reserve is not going to let the economy crash. Um, so uh, the market going up it also is the madness of crowds to a certain extent. There are companies out there going up like mad on speculation that they're going to have the cure for, or the, the, the coronavirus cure, or are going to be able to be the, the main communications network of the future, like Zoom. Uh, these are very uh, interesting predictions, um, but as uh, uh, Niels Bohr uh, said, the famous physicist, uh, uh, predictions are difficult because they involve the future. So, and the future can and the future can include which you didn't mention a crash. So when people look at mm -hmm. the lack of yield on uh, CDs versus uh, a, a reasonable yield on a junk bond, they're missing one element: is what's the probability that the uh, uh, stock or well, the bond will crash because it's way overvalued. And, you know, that gets into the whole question of risk gain. If you look at the market today, uh, even if you don't have a real disaster, the risk gain doesn't look very attractive. That is, the market's really discounted all the good news. So just from a risk gain basis, it would seem to me that you've got to really consider whether or not there's really an, an incentive here to put more money to work in the, in the stock market. Right. Well, the, when you get into the greater fool theory that I'm going to buy an asset today, figuring that there's a greater fool that's going to buy it from me in the future. Uh, that's when valuations start decoupling from uh, from actual, um, you know, business uh, results. And that, that and there's there are always problems in the market. There's always a sector in the market that's going to have that issue. I, I fear right now that we have a situation where there are quite a few companies that are that are in that situation. On that note, we have a caller um, with us. Um, I think her name's Leah. Leah, is are you here? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thanks for calling in. Do you have a question? Hi there. Yes, I sure do. I'm actually curious. What's the difference between value and growth investing? Great question, Leah. Arthur? Sure. Um, value investing is the concept that you are buying an asset that is below the actual value of the company or the asset being in question. So for example, um, if you have a company that's going to earn a dollar uh, next year and it's trading at 
$10 a share, that's a 10 times earning, you, you're paying a very low amount 10 times for that 10% earnings growth that it, might, it will get the year after. So it is a uh, considered a value company and you're paying a low price for it. The enterprise value with a 10% growth rate should be more like, you know, say 15 times earnings. So you're buying an asset for a dollar and you think it's worth a dollar 50 uh, based on the, the business uh, fundamentals. So you're buying it cheaper. Uh, that's a Warren Buffett style. Uh, Benjamin Graham, the father of value investing said, you know, buy every stock with a margin of safety so that, if there's a bad market environment, at least you know that the uh, the economic fundamental value of the company is higher than what you paid for it. So eventually you'll realize that value. Now the opposite is a growth company. Uh, the opposite end of the spectrum would be a growth company that has, uh, uh, say, a 50% growth in its uh, subscriber base. We'll use an internet company, uh, general internet company example. So you get 50% subscriber growth um, and the cash flow to the company is growing by leaps and bounds. And in order to meet the 50% growth, they ha uh, the company has to invest a lot of money in new employees and, and uh, uh, capital investment to uh, be able to serve those, all those new customers. Investors are going to go 50% growth. Well, we don't care if you're losing money because you have to spend a lot of money on, on, uh, taking care of those customers, it's growing so fast that we think that in two, three, four, five years that you're going to be making many dollars a share in profit. So we're willing to pay a lot of money for the stock right now for that potential future profit flow that we see coming out of all these new customers that you're gathering so quickly. So often a growth company will be literally have no earnings or negative earnings. A biotech company would be a good example working on a new therapeutic uh, uh, they will be spending a lot of money on that process with no cash flow uh, to, to, to see from it until they actually have the product in the market and then they have a rapid cash flow and the earnings then catch up with the stock price. So you're, you're paying for future growth in a growth company, you're buying in a value company uh, a asset for less than what it's worth. And given that growth has been an outperformer now for many years, mm -hmm. however, over the long run, value usually outperforms. So what would yes. you recommend for somebody in terms of most people are always chasing the hot dot, but do you think it's time now to buy value? Well, that's a really interesting uh, uh, debate because, yes, it's true that for the last eight, nine years, and especially the last year to two years in the last few months, growth companies have dramatically outperformed value companies. And part of that is because value companies have been concentrated in the financial sector, which has a hard time growing rapidly when interest rates are very low, and also the energy sector, which is going through what I think is a sea change in, uh, uh, in the adoption and use of fossil fuels. So those two industries dominate the value sector, which has underperformed. Um, the growth investor would say, well, you know, low interest rates are going to continue at least now for the next couple of years, at least, as the Federal Reserve has said, they're not going to be raising interest rates. Um, so growth companies do better when interest rates are low. Uh, so uh, we think the future is for the bold and that these companies that are providing new services are going to uh, be able to realize their, their valuations down the road. Um, 
now you're asking me for advice what to do. Well, I think uh, that in the shorter term, it seems that the momentum is behind the growth trade still and low interest rates would argue for uh, buying growth stocks. Um, market momentum, as I mentioned, is really positive towards growth companies and financial companies and energy companies, value companies uh, and, and industrial companies, you know, the general electrics of the world, the guys who make widgets and, and uh, airplane engines and all these kinds of things are, are, are struggling. Typically over the future, uh, when you discount cash flow out, those kinds of bargains um, uh, get paid off and outperform. And that's been the history of the stock market. This time may be different, but those are probably the four most dangerous words in investor's lexicon. This time is different. So I think it's a good idea to make sure you have value investments in your portfolio. Um, it's tough to predict when they're going to do well, but when they do, they actually lead the market and are the best performers over long periods of time. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Are you ready to start and run your own successful business? Ready to grow your small business or home business? Women's Economic Ventures is a local nonprofit helping women start and build successful businesses. In addition to their highly successful self-employment training program, Weave offers services to help women succeed at every stage of their business, from startup and launch to building and sustaining a business, including individual business counseling, professional networking events, advanced business training, and small business loans to start or expand a business. Over 1,000 local businesses are now owned and operated by women who have taken part in programs and services. Whether you're ready to start up, launch, build, or sustain your business, Women's Economic Ventures is right here to help you make it happen. Call 965-6073 or visit weaveonline.org. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about. So, and if so we talked about, um, in general, uh, what uh, the market uh, is looking like. What about the participants? You know, there's been a, a lot of articles about, you know, the Robinhood investors, the 
the young people that you know are willing to drink in a bar without a mask uh, will buy anything that they think is going up. Could that really be significant? Could that be affecting the marketplace? Uh, I think the effect that these kinds of uh, trends um, have, you can look back to the 1999, I think there was the E-Trade commercial where the trucker has the picture of the island on his rear view mirror and the passenger says, uh, hey, so is that your retirement goal? And he says, no, I own that island. You know, and then it's said, best with E-Trade, you know, buy a hot internet stock. I think that uh, the that t today Robinhood is kind of the E-Trade ad of 1999. Um, and not to say that the people back then that were investing weren't credible. I think that on the margin that drives stock prices higher in the shorter term uh, for speculative issues. But at the same time, those people then got the experience of having a 2000 to 2002 tech crash. Uh, so the it's an introduction to markets. I think it's important to, as an investor, to understand uh, how one loses money as, as well as how one makes money. And the next correction will probably uh, teach a lot of people those, those kinds of lessons. Um, tough, but uh, you, know, you have to be very nimble in, in fast moving speculative issues. And it's uh, tough for me to see how those are viable long-term investment strategies. Um, if you make some money in the short term, that's great. Uh, doing it year in, year out, day in, day out, month in, month out is a different kind of uh, challenge, requires a different kind of focus. Well, it's interesting because um, many of the millennials have a, a lower risk tolerance, meaning they're much more fearful of the market than their grandparents. So the both the baby boomers as well as the, the greatest generation had a much higher risk tolerance than many of the millennials today because of what they've lived through. They, they went through the Great Recession of 2008 and therefore are much more uh, conservative than their grandparents', grandparents generation. Yeah, one of the ways that the conservatism plays out is like a millennial say, well, I opened a Robinhood account and I've got 100 grand in the bank and I took five grand and I bought uh, some Tesla and some PayPal, you know, um, and they think, well, that's really aggressive. Uh, uh, you, your $5,000 account is very aggressive. But in reality, it's far too conservative for what they really need that 100 grand to be doing. So I think it's another issue. Exactly. So now. You know, what is your outlook, Arthur, for the economy if we get a vaccine for this um, coronavirus or if we don't? Where do you see the vaccine playing out? Sure. Right. Well, I think I think that's the the answer uh, to the crisis. The eventual answer to the crisis is a is a good vaccine. Um, the if we get one, then I think that the recovery of the stock market uh, from April through June made makes sense because people feel more comfortable. Schools will reopen. Uh, schools will reopen. Uh, hopefully at the beginning of this coming year. Um, if there's no vaccine, this is going to be very difficult. Uh, it will really require our populace, worldwide populace, to um, really be disciplined about wearing their masks and washing their hands and being socially distant. 
Uh, and that has such massive economic ramifications. And behaviorally, it's very difficult because uh, scientifically shown that permanent behavior changes start after 60 to 90 days of a, of a new environment. You, it takes about 60 to 90 days to get acclimated to a new environment as a, as a human being and start using that as, a, as the baseline for normal. Um, <laughs> so if we, go, if we go too long without a vaccine and we have to live like this for a long time, it's going to permanently shift some behaviors, a lot of behaviors. And that's why you're seeing investors uh, move their investment capital uh, to, to companies that are perceived to have great advantages in that kind of environment. Um, Amazon being the, the classic example, and then the startups are, are, or the younger companies are, are also in that group as well, the, the Zooms of the world. I, I keep coming to Zoom because we're on a Zoom call to do this radio program, just full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't own the stock. <laughs> well, and, and what what type of effects do you think remote learning as Santa Barbara mm -hmm. County, we've been, mm -hmm. we're on the watch list at the state level. Therefore, mm -hmm. the school systems, all schools, public and private, will have to go back remote unless the county can turn it around in the next, before August 4th, so we can be off that watch list for 14 days what type of effects do you think that's going to that's going to have on the economy as a whole, as well as well as on the market? Well, geez, that's such an amazing uh, uh, question. Really difficult sense. question. Sorry, I know. Yeah, there's such a list of effects. Um, I was just actually reading an article this morning that uh, talks about how you know if you don't have childcare, it's going to inhibit people from being able to come back to work. If you have a typical American household with kids, both people are working. Well, one person doesn't work. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, workers who leave the workforce for even a few years are more likely to be laid off, lose promotions, and earn less, which erodes lifetime income and retirement savings. Uh, it, it's tough for families to join, uh, uh, you know, to move up in class if there's only one person working versus two. Um, for, low, for low to low middle income, uh, single parents in particular, lack of childcare is the difference between being afloat and falling into poverty. So the, the economic ramifications for school closing are huge. And that's, I'm sure, why the administration, the current administration is trying to jawbone, you know, that schools open. Uh, it's, it's really a, a, a difficult situation economically uh, to have uh, schools not be open, not to mention over uh, the longer it goes on, the more educational impact this has for the kids. And what's going to really drive our economy in the future is having an educated workforce that is prepared to deal with uh, uh, the, the new you know, worlds of, of enterprise that are opening up today, uh, that were opening up before the crisis and are even opening up even quicker you know, as the crisis goes on and we get to the aftermath of the crisis. So a big, a huge subject. That's kind of a a, a very quick you know, look at it from my end. Yeah, quick, but yeah, accurate. You know, it, as a as a working parent, it's it's challenging to be a teacher and work full time at the same time. And I'm one of the fortunate ones. So, um, oh, so it, so um, it's time to take our final break. Oh. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment.
Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. All of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. In this season of hope, you can do something extraordinary. Join your neighbors and the American Red Cross and help save the day. When the next disaster strikes, when a neighbor's house burns down, if someone needs life-saving blood or the comfort of a helping hand, hope. Please visit sbredcross.org to donate to your American Red Cross Santa Barbara County chapter today. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Arthur, in switching gears a little bit from schools to the deficit, are you concerned about the deficit and how big it's getting and where do you see this going? Sure. Um, the, the deficit is, is always a hot topic. And it's become even, uh, it's become a, a, a sideshow today, which is fascinating uh, because um, we have, we're adding five point, uh, see, $5 trillion this year to the deficit, $5 trillion. And that was in a situation where before the virus hit, it was still, going, it was still projected to be over a trillion dollars. So the question then becomes, uh, are we just going down a road of solving every problem in the country by economic problem by just simply printing money, um, which is a, a, a popular way of saying the, the technical term uh, for the uh, for the program, which is, which is mo modern monetary theory, which is we're going to take care of uh, uh, we're going to be the bigger government and take care of our people's problems by printing up massive amounts of, of money. Um, so we're, we're now looking at a deficit of $22 trillion, uh, which is, uh, it's about the, the same as our GDP. So about equal to our GDP is our, is our current debt, sorry, deficits, $5 trillion, 
debt is 22 trillion. And if you don't reduce the deficit, you'll never reduce the debt. And so all the way up until 2017, we were reducing deficits that were uh, brought on by the, the financial crisis of 2008. And then with the, the tax cut of 2017 uh, and a couple other measures in 2018, uh, the spending increases of 2018, uh, we are back in trillion dollar deficits and now we're in five trillion dollar deficit. Uh, that's going to push the national debt dramatically higher. What are some of the ramifications of that? I worry about it because you get to a point where you look at Japan that has even more debt and even lower interest rates for an extended period of time. And Japan hasn't been able to grow. What happens when you have big deficits and uh, low interest rates is it, it crimps growth uh, for a country. And as, as an investor, it's going to be very difficult for us to grow our way out if, we, if our policies make it so it's very difficult to grow. So I think it's really a, 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 a bad uh, long-term situation if we can't get deficits under control and get them and get the debt back down again after we come out of this crisis. Yeah, but all of these conversations are assuming, I think, implicitly that we remain our currency remains the world currency. And mm -hmm. at some point, what would be a catastrophe is uh, the only way right now we can deal with this is because we can print money. But at some point, if we get really, really irresponsible, there may be a time when our currency comes under attack and we are no longer looked at as the place to put money, the, the world's monetary reserve, and that could really be a problem. And on that yeah. really positive note, <laughs> thank you, Arthur, for being thank here. Thank you, Arthur, for coming. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that was a good really time. great. Um, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll see you next week. It's 